At one time, Pitcher, Oklahoma was a growing, thriving small town in Northeast Oklahoma. At its peak, it boasted a population of over 14,000. Businesses lined the streets. There were grocery stores, convenience stores. There were multiple movie theaters. The locals loved to come out on Friday nights and cheer on their high school football team, the Pitcher Gorillas. At one time, the neighborhoods here were full. Thousands of people called Pitcher, Oklahoma home. But now this once thriving town has been completely abandoned. No one lives here. It's a figurative ghost town. The only thing that's left, rubble, debris, and a few memories that are quickly fading away. And as you pass along these forgotten streets, an eerie feeling comes over you. As you look around and reality sets in, and you see slabs of concrete where homes once stood, overgrown sidewalks, where couples once walked, and streets where kids once rode their bikes. It's a sad, sad scene to behold as you see a town that's been completely deserted. So what happened to Pitcher, Oklahoma? Well, Pitcher was put on the map in the early 20th century when zinc and lead were found in the soil here. Mining companies came in, and soon Pitcher became one of the leading exporters of zinc and lead in the entire world. In fact, in World War I, out of all the bullets that were fired, over half of them were made from lead that was extracted from right here in Pitcher. That's incredible to think about. Between 1891 and 1970, over 1.7 million tons of lead came from the land here. Over 8.8 .8 million tons of zinc. Pitcher was an extremely prosperous area. But here's a problem. All that zinc and lead, well, there were some wastes that came along with it known as mine tailings, or commonly called chat. And piles and piles of chat were left behind. In fact, today, there are 40 square acres of chat all throughout this area like the one behind me. And the locals didn't realize that this chat was not only toxic, it was extremely hazardous to their health. It ended up polluting the soil and the water, so much so that Pitcher, Oklahoma became unlivable. By 1970, the mines in this area were completely shut down, and the U.S. government placed Pitcher, Oklahoma on the national cleanup list, declaring it a Superfund site. And the people of this area, well, they started to evacuate the town, leaving in droves. Now, some held out hope. Some people remained and stayed behind, and they believed that one day, Pitcher would be restored to its greatness, would be cleaned up again. But soon, even those who stayed behind started to lose hope. In the year 2000, the Army Corps of Engineers came through and determined that 87% of the structures in the town 
were unsafe to live in. You see, they had undermined the land and they were afraid that the town itself would be swallowed up by the earth. And then in the year 2008, a massive tornado came through and took out 140 of their remaining homes as well as other structures. Soon people realized it wasn't safe to live here anymore. And as people left, all hope of one day picture being restored to greatness faded. All that remained was debris, rubble, and memories. Forty-five years before Jesus was born, those words, rubble, debris, memories, could have been used to describe another city, the city of Jerusalem. At one time, Jerusalem had been the envy of the world. It was the capital city of God's people, and God had richly blessed the nation of Israel. At one time, Jerusalem's leadership was godly. Its citizens were faithful. They were grateful to their God. Its economy was prosperous. Its walls were fortified and strong, and the temple stood as a tall and mighty symbol of God's presence among His people. But in the year 445 B.C., rubble, debris, memories, those words were a better description of what the city had become. Listen to how the Bible describes Jerusalem at this point in history. It says, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned. Nehemiah 4 verse 3 describes the city of Jerusalem as nothing more than heaps of rubble. And here's the thing, Jerusalem had been in this state of ruin for over 100 years. The physical city of Jerusalem, well, it hadn't been anything great for generations. And how did this happen? How did this once prominent and prosperous city of God become known for nothing more than rubble and fading memories greatness. Well, Jerusalem wasn't in this state because of physical toxins that had contaminated the soil, the land, like what happened in Pitcher, Oklahoma, but it was due to spiritual toxic behavior that had contaminated and polluted the souls of Jerusalem's citizens, its people. See, the people, they had turned away from their God, and they had chased after their own selfish desires and ambitions. They had ignored God's plan and they had chosen a course that led to emptiness and destruction. And so in the year 586 BC, the nation of Israel was in a very, very dark place. And God allowed a foreign king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar to sack and destroy Jerusalem and to take its most talented and skilled citizens into exile. And for years, the people had hoped and prayed that one day Jerusalem would be restored to its greatness again. But after over 100 years of Jerusalem being nothing more than debris and rubble, many had stopped dreaming. Many had stopped believing that Jerusalem could ever be anything more.
That is until we meet this guy named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a Jew, but he had never lived in Jerusalem. His family had been taken captive 140 years prior, and he lived 800 miles away from the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah, during his lifetime, he had risen in the ranks. He had become cupbearer to the king of Persia, which meant he got to spend one-on-one -on -one time with the king himself. He got to live in the palace. He got to spend time in the king's court. And you can imagine all the prestige and honor that went along with that position. And one day, while Nehemiah is working in the palace, he hears that a group of Jews from Jerusalem had come to visit the capital city. And so Nehemiah wants to meet with these Jews because these are his people. And he asked them, how is the city of Jerusalem doing? This group of Jews lets him know the bad news. They say the city of Jerusalem is still in ruins. It's in shambles. The walls are still heaps of rubble, nothing but debris. And in that moment, Nehemiah is convicted. Because you see, the strength of a city in that day and age was its walls. Walls didn't just provide protection. Walls also were a sign of honor and respect. And the fact that the walls were still, well, just heaps of rubble, that was a disgrace upon the city. That was a disgrace upon their God. And Nehemiah knew something needed to be done. So Nehemiah, he spent some extended time in prayer. And he realizes that the task of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, it's a big one, but it's not too big for his God. So he goes to his boss, the king of Persia, and he asks permission to go back to his homeland, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city's walls. And amazingly, the king gives him permission to do so. And so when he arrives in Jerusalem, he rallies the people who are still living there. And he says, years ago, God did incredible big things in our midst. And that same God is still our God today. So the people place their faith in God and they're able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. Now, there are no overt miracles recorded in the book of Nehemiah, but I think that's a pretty miraculous feat. Only 52 days? I think it happened because their faith was in their God. See, one of my favorite verses in the book of Nehemiah comes from Nehemiah 2, verse 20, when it, Nehemiah tells the people, the God of heaven will give us success, so let us arise and build. See, Nehemiah, he wasn't a prophet. He wasn't even a priest. He was just a normal guy who had faith in his big God. And the same God that led Nehemiah, who empowered the people in Nehemiah's day, is our God as well. Maybe it's time that we started to dream big dreams again, God-shaped, God-sized dreams again, and see what our God can do in our midst. I don't know if the city of Pitcher, Oklahoma will ever be cleaned up and rebuilt. There are cleanup attempts taking place right now as I speak. And I hope for the sake of those who love this land, this area, that one day it will be. But I do know one thing, when it comes to us, you and me, no life is beyond God's repair. No life is stuck where it is. Nehemiah, he was able to rebuild Jerusalem, not because the situation changed, but because his perspective changed. He started to dream big, God-shaped dreams again. First Church, I believe with all of my heart 
that God wants to do something great through us beyond our gifts and abilities. He wants to grow and expand His kingdom in the midst of this broken world. But for Him to do so, we've got to be willing to pursue His dreams for our lives. Let me ask, are you ready to dream big, God-sized dreams again? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to dream dreams based on what our God can do. It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Are you ready to dream dreams based on what our God can do? Let me put it this way. Are you ready to live out God's dreams for your life? Because if I'm being transparent with you, a lot of times I settle for a life that's much less than what God intends for me to live. See, all of us have dreams about what life should be and could be. We dream about who we should be and what we can achieve. We all want success and happiness, and we want to have healthy families and well-paying jobs. We want to be a people who have great friendships. We want to be a people who feel satisfied. We want to be a people who feel fulfilled. But the reality is we are a broken people living in a very, very broken world. Sin has corrupted this life that God has given us, and because of that, we are surrounded by darkness. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Heartache is real. But the truth is, there is also healing. And our God, He can take the most broken life and redeem it. He can take the most broken situation and restore it back to life. All it takes is a willingness on our part to be willing to hand the rubble and ruin of our lives over to Him. I don't know what you think about when you hear the words rubble, ruin, debris, broken down, empty. You might think of a town like Pitcher, Oklahoma that's been abandoned. You might think of Jerusalem like in Nehemiah's day, ancient ruins. You might think of a house that's falling down that needs Chip and Joanna Gaines to come and do some work to it and fix it up. You might think of our culture, our society, our morals, but you might just think of your life. I don't know about you, but I've had seasons of my life when rubble, debris, ruin, broken down emptiness, those words could very well describe where I was at. And I wonder, where are you today? Because if you're like me, you probably don't always make the best decisions. I don't always make the best decisions in life, and being a parent reminds me of that all the time. My kids remind me of the fact that I don't always make the best decisions. A few months ago, this past fall, my family was able to go to Silver Dollar City in Branson, Missouri. Here's a picture of us at Silver Dollar City. It was their fall festival time and Pumpkin City and all that good stuff, and we had a blast. My kids always love going to Silver Dollar City, and Alex, my oldest, he was able to ride just about every single ride. He was tall enough to do it, but Addie wasn't. She's a little bit smaller, and so there were several rides and more adult roller coasters that she wasn't able to get on. So she was kind of bummed, kind of disappointed, but she still had fun. And we came to this one roller coaster, and it was an adult roller coaster, and Addie was tall enough to get on it. We measured her and everything, and she was tall enough to get on it. She was excited. We were excited to put her on it. So we waited in line, and then we got up to get on, and they measured her one more time, the staff there at Silver Dollar City, to make sure that she was tall enough, and she was 
was. And so she got on and we, you know, strapped her in and all that good stuff like she needed to be. And we were excited that she would get to experience this roller coaster, her first ever adult roller coaster. But what we didn't realize is what type of roller coaster this was. We'd never been on it. And I'm not sure if you've rode on powder keg before at Silver Dollar City, but it launches you from the very beginning. I mean, you take off going zero to 1,000 in just an instant. I mean, it's crazy. And then after that, it doesn't slow down. It's just curves and drops from there on out. And so we took off, and we took off going zero to like 1,000. I mean, we just took off. And I remember thinking in that moment, I am the worst dad ever to put my little girl, my three-year-old, on this ride. And so we took off, and the whole time I'm worried about her. She and Allison were behind Alex and me, so I didn't get to see her face. And I'm thinking, I know my daughter's going to lose her lunch. I was just worried about that. But we finally came to a stop, and I unbuckled, and I turned around to look at her. And Addie was just white as a ghost, her eyes about this big. And so we got her off the ride, and she kind of walked like this. You know what I'm saying, you know, and so we took her over. I was afraid she was going to get sick. We set her down on a bench, gave her some water, and I looked at her and I said, Hattie, baby girl, are you okay? And she looked at me and she goes, yeah, why did we do that? (laughs) And I said the only thing that came to mind in the moment, it was your mom's idea. No, I really didn't say that. I'm kidding. I didn't throw Allison under the bus. But that's what I was tempted to say. You know why? Because I don't always like to own my mistakes, I don't always like to own my brokenness. I'd rather cover them up. I'd rather act like they don't exist. But the truth is, when we start to own our brokenness, when we start to own the debris and rubble that's in our lives, and we turn over to God, he can build us up into what we were meant to be. Listen to this promise that's found in Isaiah 61. It says, he, speaking of God, will give beauty for ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of heaviness. You see, we worship a God, we serve a God who exchanges ashes for beauty, mourning for joy, heaviness for praise. He can replace our emptiness with wholeness and fullness again. See, we have a God who wants to restore us, who doesn't have the power to restore us, but wants to restore us. The question is, will you let him? Because no matter where you are right now, God can use your life and your circumstances to do something amazing. And that's why I love the book of Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah was a man who was looking at rubble and ruin It was the state of the city of Jerusalem, but for that matter, spiritually speaking, it was the state of the nation of Israel. And he had rubble and ruin, debris before him. And everybody in his day, they were looking at Jerusalem and saying, Jerusalem will never be anything more. They had given up hope. But Nehemiah didn't give up hope because Nehemiah knew that the same God who had worked among his people generations ago was still on the throne today and was still his God. And yeah, the situation may be overwhelming and people may have lost hope, but the task of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding its walls was not too big for their big God. See, this was the attitude of the people in Nehemiah's day. They were saying, there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And you know what? They were right. There was so much rubble, so much debris, so much destruction They in and of themselves could not rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They didn't have the power, the strength, the abilities, the resources. The Jewish people on that day could not do it on their own. But Nehemiah knew something. 
Nehemiah knew that with God, we don't have to settle for brokenness as normal. See, that's what was going on in their day. They just kind of given up hope and said, Jerusalem as it is is how it will always be. And don't we do that sometimes? Don't we just settle for brokenness as normal, as if things are never going to get better, it's just the way it is. And we just kind of settle for our emptiness and brokenness and pain and suffering as normal. But with God, brokenness doesn't have to be normal. Because no situation, no circumstance, no life is beyond his redemption and restoration. And Nehemiah knows that. And so he goes to the city of Jerusalem or what's left of it and he meets with the people who are living in the surrounding area and he says, we can do this if we turn this over to God. On our own we can't, but if we rely on his strength and do it his way, if we give this rubble and ruin over to him, he can empower us to do something beyond ourselves. And Nehemiah prays a whole lot during this time, and one of the themes of his prayer life is this. He says, oh God, strengthen my hands. In other words, I can't do this on my own, but with you, if you give me the strength, I can accomplish this. Because Nehemiah knew there's no life, no situation, no circumstance that God can't redeem. And I love what he tells the people when he's trying to motivate them. He's trying to inspire them to believe the same thing. Listen to what he says to the people of Jerusalem. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. In other words, guys, we got to get to work. We're going to get to work and we're going to do what we can do and God will do what he can do. And as he empowers us, he will give us the success to do what he is calling us asking us to do and I wonder what would happen today if we live with that kind of faith we know what happened in Nehemiah's day they were able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they did it in just 52 days now there are no overt miracles recorded in the book of Nehemiah but that's pretty miraculous some people say today, there's no way that the Jewish people and that, at that point in history would have been able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. There's no way that could have happened. And you know what? They might be right. There's no way by themselves they could have done it. But with God's help, with God's empowerment, absolutely. And I just have to ask, what could God do among us in 52 days? If we turned our debris and rubble over to him, and said, God, do with it what you want to do. What could God do in our church? What could God do in your life? What would our lives look like at the end of a 52-day period if we had that type of faith? And so let me ask you, are you ready to do the big things that God wants us to do? Are you ready to do some crazy things for God? some extreme, radical things for God that everybody else will look at you and say, there's no way you can do that. And your response is, yeah, I can't, but God can. Are you ready to do the big things that God wants you to do? And it might be different for all of us. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what part of your life needs to be repaired or restored. 
I don't know what issues you're dealing with. I don't know what opportunities God's been opening up to and you've been ignoring or what doors he's been opening and you've been trying to shut them. I don't know what the big thing is that God wants you to do, but I guarantee there's something right now God wants you to do that you haven't been doing that you're not doing. What if over the next 52 days we challenge ourselves as a church and say, God, I am open to doing whatever it is you want me to do. And I think our culture, the culture we live in right now, needs to see the church doing just that, having that type of faith. Because those words, rubble, debris, ruin, destruction, whatever, emptiness, some people would use those words to describe the state of our culture right now. Some people would use those words to describe the year that we just finished, 2020. And I believe, church, first church, I believe we are here for such a time as this. Because in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of the rubble and ruin that surrounds us because of sin, in the midst of everything that we're experiencing and the hopelessness that people feel right now, in the midst of everything that we are going through, people need Jesus now more than ever. And our mission has not changed. The mission that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he commanded us, that mission doesn't stop in the midst of a pandemic. We are called to shine the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness. And I believe our world needs the church now more than ever. And as we begin 2021, let's dream big God-sized dreams again. Let's not settle for what we can do. Let's not settle chasing after our own ambitions and desires. Let's find out what God wants us to do. And let's live out his dreams for our life. And carrying out our mission in the midst of these uncertain and unstable times might be the biggest challenge of our lifetime as a church. But even though these are unstable and uncertain times, I think this is a time ripe with opportunity. Because God does his greatest work in the midst of darkness. There is no life, there is no situation, there is no circumstance that our God can't redeem. There is no rubble, debris, or ruin that God can't build into what it was meant to be. So let me just ask you right now, over the next 52 days, what does God want you to do? If you don't know, I want you to ask that question. I want you to pray to him over the next 52 days, and I want you to ask that question. Maybe God is opening a door right now for you to serve him in some way, and you've been ignoring it. Maybe there's some air in your life that he needs to clean up and fix that you haven't handed over to him. Maybe your marriage right now is struggling, and you need some help. Maybe right now you have a relationship, a friendship that isn't what it should be. Maybe you're struggling right now because of what you're dealing with with work or I don't know. But whatever it is, God can use it. God can redeem it. And our God is bigger than any obstacle we might be facing. 
So what I want to do is I want to challenge our church, issue a challenge today, this first Sunday of 2021, for you to pray for God to do something big, for you to be ready and willing for God to do something big in your life and in the life of our church over the next 52 days. Because no matter where you are right now, God can use your life and your circumstances to do something amazing. The question is, are you willing, like Nehemiah, to start living out God's dreams for your life? Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, never lived there, but he knew something needed to be done, and God laid that something on his heart. Nehemiah wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he was just an average guy, and God used him to do something incredible. I just wonder what our church might look like at the end of a 52-day period, which is going to be about the length of this series, by the way. I wonder what our church will look like at the end of 52 days, what your life might look like at the end of 52 days if we started to intentionally live out God's dreams for our lives. So that's what I'm doing this morning. We're going to dive into the book of Nehemiah next week and really study it and see how God worked in his life and what we can learn from Nehemiah's example. But today, what I wanted to do and what I am doing is just issuing a challenge to our church for us to pray that over the next 52 days, God does something incredible and big in our lives, that we would be willing and open to him moving and working in us like he never has before. So as we end today, that's what I want to do, is simply pray over you. So here in just a second, I'm going to ask you to stand, and when you do, I'm going to pray over you, and I'm going to pray that God moves in incredible ways over the next 52 days, and that I'm going to pray that you're going to be willing to do what he wants you to do. Our church will be willing to take a great step of faith and do what he wants us to do. And as I get to the end of that prayer, I'm just going to say, if if you're with me, God, this is our response. And if you would just say out loud with me at the end of that prayer, oh God, strengthen our hands from the words of Nehemiah. So I'll give you the cue to do that if you're with me at the end of that prayer. So if you would stand, then I'm going to pray over you as we issue this 52-day challenge. Father, so often we settle for lives that are far less than what you want them to be. So often we settle for brokenness as normal and we live for ourselves and our own selfish desires rather than for you. And God, we don't want to be a church like that. We want to be a church that lives out the dreams that you have for our lives. We want to be a church that dreams dreams that are based on what you could do, not on what we can do, but based on what you can do. So now I pray over all those who are listening to this message today, whether they're in person or they're online right now. Father, I pray for every person who's listening to this message that you would show them what they need to do over the next 52 days. That, Father, you would open up a door of opportunity. That you would show them what needs to be fixed and how you can fix it. That you would lead them where they need to go. Father, I pray over everyone here because I believe in each of our lives you have big dreams for us. 
And we want to be a people who are willing and ready to live out those big dreams. May we get to the end of this 52-day period as a church and look back and say, wow, that only could have happened because God was in it and God was leading us and you, God, were moving among us. And church, if you're with me in this challenge, then this is our response. Oh, God, strengthen our hands. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I can't wait to see what your life and our church looks like in 52 days.